to the book of Daniel again. If you've been here the last couple times that I've spoken, you know that we've been looking at this example of Daniel and his three Hebrew companions of how they handled life in Babylon as exiles. They'd been carried there as young people. How they handled life in that situation as an example to us of how to handle life, especially for the college student uh, as a Christian in a uh, non-Christian college. Uh, the reason that I think this is a valid comparison is because both of those situations are what, what I've called an environment of unbelief, certainly an environment of unbelief there in Babylon for those four young men. And often young people go off to college and find out this is indeed an environment of unbelief that they find themselves in. So that's what we've been doing. We've looked at some examples from uh, the account of, of Daniel and his friends to see how they handled that situation. And we saw, first of all, that they feared God. Uh, they were concerned about displeasing God more than they were concerned about displeasing the people around them. And we also saw that they uh, showed respect and courtesy and kindness even with those that disagreed with them, and that will be a necessity on campus. You'll find people that disagree with you and with whom you disagree, but you still have to show respect and kindness towards them. We also saw that it was important for them to stay together as believers. That's always important wherever we are. Uh, seek out others of like mind uh, who uh, God has worked in their hearts because that will help you to walk um, because you have the encouragement and just the uh, fellowship of others that are walking in the same way even though a lot of people around you on campus won't be walking that way. So be with believers. We also said that uh, they were very prudent. That is, they thought things through carefully before they acted. They didn't act uh, rashly or in a rushed manner, and we saw some examples of that. They also pursued excellence. In the situation that God put them in, they were not lax or lazy but they demonstrated a desire to excel even in a very uh, difficult environment. So those were the things we looked at first time. Ne the next time we uh, looked at the area of peer pressure and how important that is, there's good peer pressure, which again is why you want to be around other believers. There's bad peer pressure that can pull you down. And often on campus the uh, statement is, well, everybody's doing it. And that, that, of course, has to do with the improper or the wrong type of peer pressure. God said you should not follow a multitude in doing evil. So uh, the idea of peer pressure was something we talked about. We also talked about the area of integrity. 
which includes honesty, but it's more than that. It has to do with treating people fairly and honestly, uh, keeping your word, paying your debts, being diligent in your duties, all these things you see uh, uh, exemplified in Daniel and um, his uh, friends there. Uh, means doing right and being right. So integrity. And then we also looked at the area of just remembering who you are and being who you are. Remember, uh, one of the things that the Babylonians did when they got these young men was rename them. But Daniel, over and over again, we brought out, says, I, Daniel. In other words, they may have tried to rename him, but he said, my name's Daniel, which means God is my judge. So don't let the environment you're in rename you. Be who you are. Remember who you are and be who you are. And then lastly, we noted that, uh, especially for Daniel, he is recorded as reading God's Word, spending time in God's Word. That's very important in, in an environment of unbelief or uh, in any situation, but especially in an environment of unbelief because there's conditions of low visibility. You're not going to see things clearly by what's being said around you, so you need to get into God's Word where He's told us what reality is like and how we should understand uh, the things around us. So habitual study of God's Word has always been an instrument used by the Holy Spirit to inform and transform God's people. So those are the things we've looked at in the past, and we want to go on from there tonight and consider three other areas. I believe this will be the last time that I speak on this subject, not that there's not a lot more uh, related to uh, living the Christian life on a college campus, but these are things that I've seen here in this example from the book of Daniel, and uh, so those are the ones I've chosen to emphasize in these three messages. Now, what we're going to look at tonight is found mainly in chapter 2 of Daniel, so why don't we turn there. And uh, we're going to read kind of a lengthy section here. So I thought maybe I'd break it up and have some other guys help me do some of the reading here. So I need somebody that will speak nice and loud. Uh, John Dees, if you would read uh, verses, and we're in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And then Mike Clary... If you would read 14 through 24. And then, uh, how about Jim Kelly, uh, verses 25 through 30. So everybody got their assignments? All right, John, why don't you start us then? Live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. 
replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you've seen that the command from me is firm. And if you do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there's no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious, and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that it would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even, thou, even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee. For thou hast made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which 
the king has inquired, neither wise man, conjurer, magician, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals the mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king. And that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Well, thank you. Uh, this is certainly an amazing account, isn't it? And uh, by the Lord's grace here, hopefully we can glean some things that will be helpful to us. Why don't we pray here once again before we examine this? Father, we pray for your help. Speak to us now from this portion of Scripture, from this example of these young men in Babylon. Pray this would be helpful to college students that hear this and all of us in various situations we find ourselves where the truths of God are denied or um, looked down upon. Help us, Father, to be lights in the midst of darkness just as Daniel and his companions were. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I would point out from this account is the importance of prayer in a hostile environment. You see that in verses uh, 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. What they do? They got together and prayed. And uh, what were they doing? They were praying for grace to help in time of need. This was definitely a time of need. Their lives were on the line. Uh, it says they requested compassion from the God of heaven. Isn't that a good, good way of talking about prayer? Prayer is requesting compassion from the God of heaven. And you see that even after they had prayed, when God had answered their prayer, get, let Daniel understand uh, the interpretation of this thing, he prayed again, it says, with thanksgiving. And then the, the prayer is recorded for us here in verses 20. Through 23, let's look just at verse 23. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. So he prayed for help, and then when he got help, he prayed with thanksgiving for the help that he re received. I, to thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now thou hast made known to me what I have requested of thee, for thou hast made known to us the king's matter. So... As you read through this account uh, in the book of Daniel, you know, it's so easy to get 
bogged down in all the prophecies in the book of Daniel and miss out the, uh, concerning the character of the men uh, that the book is all about, especially Daniel. So what, I've, what we're doing here these three times is we haven't really even read the prophecies because we're, we're interested in, in trying to understand how these young men dealt with life in Babylon. And one of the things you see is that they prayed. Uh, as you read through the book of Daniel, you'll find that he was a man of prayer, not just in times of trouble, trouble like this was. You know, a lot of people will pray when, when they're in the foxhole. But uh, he was a man of prayer, and that comes out clearly as you read through this book. A prayer was a way of life for him. If you just skip over quickly to chapter 6 and verse 10. Now, this is another situation where he was in trouble, but, but the point of the, this verse is that prayer was a common characteristic of his life. Now, when Daniel knew that the decree was signed, this had to do with... Uh, no, no one should uh, make any petition or prayer except to the, the ruler here. Well, when, they, when Daniel knew that that uh, document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. This was a way of life, you see, for Daniel. That's the reason his enemies knew that they could catch him on this, because they, they were even aware that this is the way this guy lived. He was a man of prayer three times a day, uh, on his knees, praying and giving thanks before God. So even his enemies knew that this about him, and they knew that this, uh, they used it as the basis for the plot against him. Again, we see his prayerfulness as he reads the scriptures. I mean, when we read the scriptures, we ought to be praying for insight and understanding. And this is what Daniel did. If you turn over to chapter 9, we'll get back to chapter 2 here in a minute. I'm just skipping around a little bit. Uh, if you turn over to chapter 9, you see that he's reading in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. And the interesting thing is what he does after he reads, um, in the first year of his reign, uh, we're in chapter 9, verse 2, in the first year of his reign, that is this Darius, uh, another king, like I said before, Daniel was, was uh, important in the history of Babylon through a number of rulers. He outlived quite a few of them. Well, anyway, this is another one. In the first year of the reign uh, of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fastings, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keeps his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and thy ordinances. And the prayer goes on like that. It's a prayer of confession and faith. But he, this came about as he read the scriptures. 
he understood, he got some insight from what he read, and then he took those things to God in prayer. The point I'm making here is that this man was a man of prayer, uh, consistent daily prayer, and uh, this is needful for all of us. This, this uh, prayer, we don't have the time to read it tonight, it's a tremendous prayer here that goes all the way down through chapter or through verse 19 let me just uh, let's just notice how it concludes in verses uh, 17 18 and 19 so now our God listen to the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and for thy sake O Lord let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary O my God incline thine ear and hear Open thine ears and see our desolations in the city which is called by thy name. For we are not presenting our supplication before thee on account of any merits of our own, but on account of thy great compassion. O Lord God, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for thine own sake. O my God, do not delay because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. So, a tremendous prayer. And what's he doing here? Well, first of all, he's saying, he's taking a position of faith and humility. He's saying not, no, not on the basis of any merit of our own, um, but he's asking for God to glorify himself. A prayer for God's glory presented in faith and humility will not go unheard in heaven. Look what it says later on um, chapter 10 verse 12. Chapter 10 verse 12. God sent a messenger to Daniel, an angel. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to your words. So God says, I, I was hearing and um, answering your prayer from the first day that you began to pray. And uh, then just skip on down. I know we're skipping around here a lot, but it, we just, I just want to give you a feel for this man and uh, this subject of prayer in his life. Verse uh, 19. And he said to me, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. But here he comes, this messenger from God says, Don't be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, let's, let's apply this to the college life now. Uh, if we're really trying to live for God at college, if a person's really trying to do that, they'll need encouragement from God. Uh, they'll need this kind of help from the Lord. And they, Daniel got this help because he prayed. Uh, there will be times when you'll feel outnumbered and overwhelmed. But like Daniel, 
and his companions, you need to pray and keep on praying and pray and pray some more. That's what they did. In the college situation, pray for your teachers. Pray for your classmates. Pray for the other Christians on campus. Pray for strength and courage and discernment. Pray for open doors for the gospel. Pray for the things that we've spoken about in these messages. You're not going to be able to live like that. You're not going to be able to live like what I've been talking about, like Daniel and these young men lived, unless you pray and ask God for help and get help from God. And keep on asking and seeking and knocking. Uh, Prayer will be heard, and God will send help in response to your words. That's, um, I like the way it's said there. Uh, I have come in response to your words. That's what this messenger from God said, this angel. I have come in response to your words. Well, that's because he prayed. So, that would be something that we see in their lives and the lives of Daniel and something that would be vital for the Christian at college to pray. Well, let's go back then to chapter 2. God gave insight to Daniel which no man can have on his own. You remember the account here. This king, he was pretty sharp. Because he says, now, I've had a dream, and I want to know the interpretation of that dream. But I want to know that this interpretation that you magicians, conjurers, and Chaldeans give me is right. Because I don't know what the dream means. You could tell me anything. How do I know if it's right? So what's he say? You tell me what the dream was, and then tell me the interpretation. Then I'll know you can tell me the interpretation. Because you're going to tell me what the dream is without me telling you. So they said, whoa, <laughs> nobody does that. Now, I like the way they said it here. This is, I think, significant. Uh, in verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, now here's a significant thing, the thing which the king demands is difficult and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Now I want to I make a point from this. It's a little beyond what's contained right here in this example, but uh, it's something that I think is vital for the Christian in college and was very helpful to me. Uh, So the point that I want to make from this account is that you can have confidence in the classroom because God has revealed truth to you. You can have confidence in the classroom because God has revealed truth to you. If you skip over to verse 27... Daniel answered before the king and said, For the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, 
There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Now, I was greatly helped in my time in college by realizing that because God had revealed his truth to me in his word, I had answers to the big issues of life, life's mysteries, you might call them, you know, like, who am I? Where did I come from? What's my purpose? What's the purpose of anything? I had answers to those because of the revelation that God had given. And I, I had answers that I knew the atheist and the agnostics, uh, and I had some teachers that were like that. I knew I had answers they did not have. And uh, that goes for the other fellow students that were non-Christians. Now, here's the thing I want you to get a hold of. Yes, in those situations, some of those teachers could present some things that I didn't know how to answer. Some things that seemed to challenge my faith. But you see, they didn't have any answers for the really big issues of meaning and purpose and knowledge. They had no answers for those things. To put it in another way, they had some particulars that I didn't know the answer to, but I had the universals without which no particulars have any meaning. Now, you have to think about that a little bit. That's a, I read this to my wife, and she said, that's too philosophical. <laughs> One philosopher said it this way. He said, A finite point has no meaning apart from an infinite reference point. I had the infinite reference point, which is God. They didn't. What they had to say, even if I couldn't answer all the particulars, didn't really matter because I had the infinite reference point. And their little particular really doesn't matter. Now, some of the... See, sometimes... It's not wrong to deal with those particulars. If you know the answer, say, that's wrong. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> but sometimes you don't know the answer, and you don't have time to figure out the answer. But you st that does not have to shake you in the least. You're not making a leap of faith because you have the universals. You have the overall answers that make it so that they can give any kind of a particular, and unless they have those, uh, unless they have that foundation, they have nothing to stand on. Uh, what this means is that you can rest even in classes that are very antagonistic to your faith. You can be assured that their position of unbelief lacks a solid foundation. Now, this was, to me, this was one of the great benefits that I received from reading books by Francis Schaeffer. They were so, so helpful to me. Now, some of you current college students hardly know who Francis Schaeffer is. But um, at that time, he was a very well-known, what they call, apologist. And uh, the things that he wrote was, were very helpful to me. 
One of the things that he pointed out so clearly uh, with many examples in his book was that if you, if you carry the assumptions of any system of thought, any worldview besides Christianity, to its logical conclusion, it breaks down. It doesn't fit reality. Or, if we would uh, use a phrase from Daniel here, it will be found to uh, be weighed in the scales and found deficient. And that's what happens. You take that worldview that's being uh, espoused by this atheist or this agnostic, and you carry it to its logical con- conclusion, and you'll find, find that it is deficient. It doesn't fit reality. So uh, the only reason that this is not always readily apparent is that those other systems are constantly borrowing from the Christian worldview even as they attack it. Now, some of these things I know uh, you'll have to think about and maybe do some reading on, but it's really helpful in those classes um, if you can get a hold of it, uh, what we're talking about here. Um, Well, let me try to say it in as simple of a way as I can. Only God makes sense out of life. That's about the bottom line. Only God makes sense out of life. If you try to start anywhere else, you are doomed to failure. Only if the infinite personal God of the Bible exists and has given us a reliable revelation do we have a logical and rational basis for meaning, purpose, morality, or or knowledge. What that means is the moment that a person denies God and his reliable revelation, you're plunged into confusion. And chaos. You might put it this way. It comes down to this. It's either Christ or chaos. Christ or chaos. Once you really see that, you're, you're kind of off the defensive in those classes. You don't have to feel uptight when, when the teacher brings up some uh, particular that you don't know the answer to. Um, you know that you have the foundational answers that make sense out of life that the teacher and the others don't have. So let me state it yet another way. I'm just trying to hit this from different angles here. Uh, If there is no God, then there is no ultimate meaning to life. And if there is no ultimate meaning to life, then nothing really has any meaning. And if nothing has any meaning, class is dismissed. Really, it's all over. Uh, there's nothing to learn because there's nothing, there's nothing that can be learned or taught. Life is meaningless, period. The statement itself is meaningless. You can't even make the statement. It's self-refuting.
when an in intellectually brilliant teacher, and some of these teachers are very brilliant, we're not saying that they're not, great capacities mentally, when an intellectually brilliant teacher uses his intellect to deny God and you feel intimidated by his brilliance, always remember he's pulling the rug out from under himself. Turning his intellectual guns against God, he will always shoot himself in the end. And some of them end up doing that literally because they see that life has no meaning. So we should pity such teachers and students in that situation. They're heading down a dead-end street. To turn from God is always to turn towards death. But, as Daniel said, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. To deny him is to be a fool no matter what your IQ is. Well, uh, I have a bunch of quotes here by guys that say, say, say this better than I do. Maybe I'll read them later. Uh, we'll go on. The last area I'd like to touch on this evening is humility. We must remember and acknowledge our total dependence on God for any good that comes to us or through us. And you see that in verse 30. We're in chapter 2 again. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king. A humble acknowledgement of total dependence upon God. Pride is a common characteristic on the college campus. Pride of learning, pride of appearance, pride of abilities, pride of possessions. It comes in so many forms, even religious pride is not uncommon. But on campus, the form that's the most pronounced is pride of intellect. Intellectual capacity and knowledge of great amounts of information causes many to have an inflated view of themselves. As Paul said, knowledge puffs up. And you will meet some very puffed-up people on campus. And we need to beware of becoming like that ourselves, even religiously. Paul said, Do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think, but think as having a sound judgment. What's a sound judgment? Well, one thing it would include would be, What do you have that you have not received? There's no way to be puffed up about intellect. Where did you get 
whatever capacities you have. You got them from God. Even your rationality is from God and can be taken away at any time. Nebuchadnezzar found that out, if you're familiar with the book. Uh, we won't look at it now, but uh, chapter 6, the latter part of chapter 6, he goes out and surveys Babylon and said, is this not Babylon that I've made? And, and basically uh, boasting in his abilities. And just like that, God takes it away, takes his rationality away. And he ends up out in the field eating grass with the cattle. So, what have you that you've not received? Even the, the ability to put one thought on top of another in a rational way is a gift from God. And, uh, you know, Daniel actually mentioned this in the prayer that we read earlier. He gives wisdom to wise men. This is back in uh, chapter 2, verse 21. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Always remember, you're totally dependent on God. This is something that you see in the life of these young men, a dependence and an acknowledgement of their dependence upon God. And when, he, you know, when the king's ready to uh, you know, bestow all kinds of honors and things upon him, He's, he's saying, but as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. Total dependence and acknowledgement of his dependence upon God. So, on the campus, as others flaunt their supposed wisdom and autonomy, remember that that was the attitude that plunged the human race into decay and death. It can be made to look so appealing on campus. Uh, of course, that's what Satan did right there in the garden, that attitude of autonomy. And uh, a, a uh, man-centered wisdom was made to look so appealing. But it is sin in its concentrated essence. That's what sin's all about. So I would conclude by saying to the students, don't fall for the pseudo-intellectualism that surrounds you on campus. It's a facade that puffs up your pride but will, in the end, leave you empty. Ultimately, it will matter little if you are counted as wise or foolish by those at college. What will matter is whether you've walked with God and made it your aim and desire to be pleasing to Him. That's true wisdom and man's reason for existence. Well, we'll close with that. May these characteristics of Daniel and his companions be part of our lives all of us that are Christians, no matter what situation, but especially for the college students. These are important things, I think, to remember. Any, uh, anyone have anything they'd like to 
share her before I step down. Let me read just a couple of these quotes to you. C.S. Lewis. Put on your thinking cap now. Suppose there were no intelligence behind the universe. Just happened, okay? No intelligence behind the universe. In that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. Thought is merely the byproduct of some atoms within my skull, but if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course, I can't trust my arguments leading to atheism, and therefore I have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Now listen to this line. Unless I believe in God, I can't believe in thought. Unless I believe in God, I can't believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve in God. Isn't that incredible? Here's a man named R.J. Rushdoony. Wherever man asserts his independence of God, saying in effect that while he will deny God, he will not deny life, nor its relationships, values, or society, its science and art, he is involved in contradiction. It is an impossibility for man to deny God and still have law and order, justice, science, anything apart from God. The more man and society depart from God, the more they depart from all reality, the more they are caught in the net of self-contradiction and self-frustration. Now, when he, when, you know, the thought then comes, well, people who deny God do have laws and, and art and science. Yes, but they don't have a sufficient basis for those things. This is what, what Rush Dooney is saying here. There's no basis, no foundation for those things. The only reason they can do that is they're borrowing capital from the Christian worldview to do it. How are you going to have a law if there's no ultimate lawgiver? answer that. Well, you just make the law up. How valid is it? It's worthless. That's just one area. Here's a guy named Cornelius Van Til. The best, the only, the absolutely certain proof of the truth of Christianity is that unless its truth is presupposed, there can be no proof of anything. Christianity is proved as being the very foundation of the idea of proof itself. Well, the, the reason that I bring that area up is because it was so helpful to me in, in college. Because you're sitting in this classroom and you cannot answer some of these questions. And that, you know, that could tend to bother you. Like, am I just really making a leap into the dark here as uh, being Christian. But you know you're not because you know you have the big answers that they don't have. And unless you have the big answers, these little pro problems don't mean anything. That's helpful to me. I mean, it just made it so I could sit there and I don't want to say relax, but 
uh, it was like the pressure's off. This guy's in a mess. I've got the answers. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the truth some of those philosophers you know they, they're, they're famous because nobody can understand them <laughs> and the reason nobody could understand them was because what they wrote was not rational it didn't make sense but they could say it in such big words you didn't recognize it right off well, all right, I'll sit down.